You are worthy. You are worthy. If you just want to proclaim his name or one of his attributes right now, you're welcome to. He's the king of kings. Amen. Amen. The Alpha and the Omega. Yes. Emmanuel. Father. Mm. Lord Jesus, we love you. We exalt your holy name this morning. In, in, in the midst of your people here in this fellowship, Lord, we exalt the name that is above all names, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. You are Jehovah. You are Yahweh. You are Elohim. You are God. Yes, and we love you, and we praise you, God. And we ask you, Lord, to be magnified in this service. First, in the mighty, awesome, powerful name of the Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Great to see everyone this morning. It's great to be in fellowship. Great to be in the word with you guys. And this morning, man, I got something. I got something special for you guys. It's going to be about halfway through the sermon. I'm not going to start talking about it because then I'll keep on going. But about halfway through this message, I got something special for you guys that I started on Thursday morning at 1030. And I didn't get done until Thursday night at 11 o'clock. And it's just an amazing portrait, picture, prophecy, and scripture we're going to talk about. But there I go again. I'm starting to go on. So let me, let me get back to our text. We'll get there when we get halfway through the passage. So please turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We're looking at verses 1 through 17 this morning. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and open up and read the passage to get our minds and our hearts oriented in the direction the text is taking us and seeing exactly what I'll be teaching on and what the Word of God says. So let's do it. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the villages opposite of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, the king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey to the colt, laid their clothes on them, and sat him on them. And a, a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Father, thank you for your word this morning. As we study it and we look at it closely, Lord, open our hearts. First, in the mighty and awesome name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So the title of my message this morning is simple, and it's this. You can trust Jesus, okay? You can trust Jesus, okay? Question for you. What credentials, what qualifications do you put on someone before you will put your trust in them, before you will take them at their word? How does someone prove themselves? 
How does someone prove themselves to you? Think about that for a second. You know, we, we all have different levels of trust in people. And it's depending on who they are, what they say. Are they people of their word? Do, do they do exactly what they'll say they do? Are they the real deal? Well, I'm going to show you this morning empirically, emphatically, that you can put your trust in Jesus, okay? You can put your trust in him. I'm going to show you this morning four credentials of Jesus that show that you can trust him and that he is worthy of your love, your faith, and your obedience, okay? So let's take a look at the passage. This is the triumphal entry. I began this week looking at this passage. I've I've taught this passage every Palm Sunday, Lord, I kind of like, it was kind of like a, like a routine message, you know. I'm used to what the text is going to say, and I'm ready to teach it. But the Lord directed me, and that's where I'm getting to that special part about halfway through the message that I'm super pumped and super excited to show you guys this morning. But let's get into it. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 says this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, And then it says, then that Jesus sent two disciples, which goes to the next verse. But the first part of verse 1 there, Jesus and the disciples have traveled 15 miles from Jericho, and now they arrive in Bethpage on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. It is the first of Nisan, Sunday, April 6th, 32 AD. You say, Pastor David, how do you know that exact date? Hold my sweet tea. We'll get there in a little while. Beginning, this is the beginning of the Passover week at Jerusalem. This is the final week before Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew chapter 1 through chapter 20 is the life of Christ. And then from chapter 21 on is is dedicated to the Passion Week and to his resurrection from the dead. According to Flavius Josephus, over 250,000 lambs would be slaughtered in this Passover week. That's how many lambs would be slaughtered in in honor of this week of celebration as the Jews celebrated the Passover. Based on one lamb feeding 10 people, that would be an estimated 2.5 million people in and around Jerusalem as Jesus and his disciples go into Jerusalem. So the festivities are high. The tensions are mounting between Jesus and his disciples and the religious leaders. And Jesus knows this and he sees this. So the first thing he has to do in our text is he's got to say, stop. I I, I got to show these disciples who's in charge. Millions of people surrounding Jerusalem. It's Passover week. The festivities are high. The tent, it's kind of like when we go to a carnival, when we go to a, a state fair and all the activities and the bright lights and the people, everything that's going on. We kind of lose our attention span in the excitement. And Jesus, what he's going to do here in this text is he's going to reel them in. He's going to reel them in to show them who he is, to show them who's in charge. So let's continue. Verse 2. Actually, the end of verse 1 says, then Jesus sent two disciples, and that goes with verse 2 saying to them, go into the village opposite of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied on a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has needed them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, 
Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. Okay, I'm going to give you four reasons you can trust in Jesus, okay? The first one is this. You can trust in Jesus because he is the sovereign, omniscient Lord, okay? He is eternal God. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He is omniscient, the omni, the all-knowing, eternal, powerful God in flesh. You can trust him because he is sovereign Lord and he is omniscient. And here, he's displaying his sovereignty and his omniscience and directing the disciples to go to a place they haven't been over the hillside to secure a cult. Now, we're going to see later on in the text, this is also to fulfill prophecy, but the point of this, of him sending them, is to show them who's in charge. You see, uh, Jesus Christ is sovereign Lord, okay? Who's, when you leave here today, and you walk out in the parking lot, and you see that sun moving across the sky, which is actually the sun is sitting still. We're actually orbiting as we go around the sun. You know who's putting all that together? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the sovereign, eternal God. Omniscient. Knows everything. He knows about every speck of every piece of dirt on planet Mars. He knows every single detail about your life. And check this out. He is sovereign. He is in complete control of all things. Listen to what Job said. Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. 2.5 million people in and around Jerusalem. And the sovereign Lord is there, the one that created them, the one that created Jerusalem, the one that created the world. And he's displaying that he is in control. We would, we would say today in the, in the 21st century, Jesus is calling all the shots there as he's coming in to Jerusalem. That word sovereignty, it means God's supreme rule. It means God's supreme reign. And it means this, God is in complete control. So when you see a world around you that's chaotic and things aren't going the direction, understand this, God is sovereign. In his plan, the word of God, the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, it cannot be thwarted. You can trust in Jesus, okay? You can trust in his precious, beautiful, lovely, comforting, awesome, eternal word. That's how good he is. That's how powerful he is. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said to about Jesus at the end of his life as he's there in Rome, he's there in a prison, he's fixing to be beheaded. Now, Paul's in shackles, Paul's in chain. He's fixing to be killed, okay? Things weren't going the way he wanted them to go. He wanted to be moving further out in, into uh, Spain and Italy to share the gospel, but he's in prison. And Paul says this about Jesus in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 through 16. It says, which he will bring about at the proper time. Here it is. He, talking about Jesus, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, 
Who alone possesses immortality and he dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see? To him be honor and eternal dominion forever. You and I live in a physical world, okay? We, we touch it. We grab it. We feel ourselves. We see the world around us. We see the creation. But there is a place that, that we call it, uh, it's transcendent. He, God dwells outside the realm of time and space in a place called eternity, in this unapproachable light that we will see when we step out of this life. And he is ruling and reigning at this very moment, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is immortal, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see there. James says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights, which there is no variation or shadow or turning. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and his sovereignty. And so he, he establishes that here. So number one, you can trust Jesus because he is the sovereign, omniscient Lord. Let's look, continue. Verse 7. And they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a great, very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So number two, if you're taking notes, the second reason that you can trust in Jesus is because he is not a dictator or a tyrant, but he is, as the text says, a humble king. So number two, the reason you can trust Jesus, he is a humble king. I, that just, I don't know about you, but that just brings joy to my heart, that Jesus is a humble king. I mean, has anybody ever struggled in life? Anybody ever thought, man, I'm a wretched, deplorable sinner, and I'm not going to make it? Everybody just damned yourself, condemned yourself, thinking that you're never going to make it? You know, that's our natural tendency. But the Lord Jesus Christ is a humble king. He came to serve you, okay? He came to help you. In the ancient world, kings with authority and power, they would come into town on stallions, on big, solid white stallions or solid black stallions. The horses were a symbol of their power. that They were meant to impose fear and reverence in the people they met. That was the ancient world. That was a position of power and authority, big stallion horses, but not Jesus what does he come rolling into town on? A donkey. He came on a lowly donkey. And that is because his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. He did not come to establish a political power. He did not come to establish some nation. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom to rescue people from sin, to create this thing called the body of Christ, to create a spiritual kingdom that would have an impact on the world for the glory of God so that people would see him in all his glory. He came to seek and save and to deliver man from sin. He came to bring salvation, mercy, and peace with God for the humble sinner. I just love this beautiful picture of Jesus riding in a donkey. Coming into, coming into Jerusalem, it shows his heart. It shows his servitude. 
It shows that he was eternal God, but yet he came to this earth to get dirty, to serve you and me. We call this the humility of Christ. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Paul talks about this. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Okay, this mind was in Jesus, is what Paul's saying in Philippians 2. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and came obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So there, in verse 6, he says he came of, he didn't come to make a reputation for himself. He didn't, he didn't come, he came for you and I. And it says he took on the form of a bondservant. A bondservant back in that day was one who had been freed from their servitude of labor, but yet they chose to serve their master willingly and free because the master had been so good to them. The, the Bible calls this a, a doulos. Someone that, that is, that, that your, your supervisor, your boss, your master, your king has been so good, you can't think of anywhere else to go. That's how, that's how it was. And look at the end of verse 8. If you, if you read verse 8 carefully at the very end of it, you see Paul's inflection of language when it comes to how hideous the cross was considered in the first century. At the very end of it, he says, he became obedient to the point of death. And then he uses this phrase, even, that word even there, even the death of a cross. You see, crucifixion was reserved for the lowly back in that day. Crucifixion was re reserved for the, the scum of the earth, okay? This was reserved for the lowly. This was, this was for people of no reputation. The Roman officials placed no value in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They sent him out to the place of the cross. Psalm chapter 22, verse 6 says, and this is a prophecy of Jesus' suffering. He says, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. Jesus could not have gotten any lower at the cross. There's no lower level, status, uh, place to be, whatever other words I can use. Just, you could not get lower than death by crucifixion in the first century. Okay, this was the lowest he could go. Jesus left the glory and the royalty of heaven and came low to this earth to get his hands dirty, okay? To get his hands dirty and to save us. He put on flesh so he could identify with you and me. He came for the vile. Jesus came for the immoral. Jesus came for the wretched. Jesus came for you and me because we are the wretched. We are the vile. We are the immoral. We are the ones who have seen, us, seen ourselves in our fallen sinful state and seen the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and have but, had but no choice but to throw our, our hearts and our hands and our feet at the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came for you and us. He knows you, he sees you, and he loves you. And you can trust him because he is the humble king. 
He will treat you if you come to Jesus humbly, okay? This eternal God, sovereign Lord, creator of the universe, who spoke and worlds came into existence. If you will come to him humbly, he will treat you with grace. He will treat you with mercy. He will treat you with kindness if you will humbly come to the humble king. And by the way, this is the cool thing. This humble king here that we're talking about, this humble Jesus, he has the highest seat in the universe. If you continue in that passage of, Matthew, of, of Philippians, we read Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 8. If you continue, look at the word at the very beginning. Therefore, that, that, therefore, God also highly exalted him, this humble king, and has given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why we can look at anybody on this planet and say, Jesus came for you. He came for you. I don't care how far away you are from God. I don't care how far, how far, how deep you're into sin. I don't care how many years you've wasted. The humble king will receive you if you will humbly come to him in repentance and faith. That is why, friends, you and I can trust in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he is the humble king. Amen? Amen. That's number two. We got four of them. All right, number, number verse nine, I believe we're at. Verse nine of uh, Matthew chapter 21 says, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. All right, here's number three. The third reason you can trust in Jesus is he is the promised Messiah. He is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Verse 11, he's more than a prophet. He is the promised Messiah. Go back and look at verse 5. Let's talk about the prophecies, the promised Messiah. Go back to verse 5. It says, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, a, a, a fowl of a donkey. This is the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The whole entire life of Christ is laid out in the Old Testament. There are over 350 Old Testament prophecies that, um, from the Old Testament that are completely fulfilled in Christ. And in Zechariah 9.9, as Matthew is pointing out here in verse 5, here what's he saying? This is the prophecy of the humble king. The humble king and the daughter of Zion. Zion is, Zion is Jerusalem. It's the city of God. And there all the people, the 2.5 million people gathered. And here is the Messiah coming to the daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt of fowl. And if you go back to um, the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, it also 
says in that prophecy that this, this uh, Matthew quoting from that prophecy doesn't complete the whole entire prophecy, but if you go back and look at Zechariah 9, 9, it says he came to bring salvation. What week are we in in our study? This is Palm Sunday. In, in five or six days, Jesus will be crucified. So Jesus, the sovereign Lord, is going into Jerusalem to make a way for salvation, to make a way for you and I to be forgiven, to make a way for you to become a new creature in Christ. Jesus, in his omniscience, in his sovereignty, knows each and every one of you guys this morning by name. He knows every single hair on your head. And as he is going into Jerusalem, in his omniscience and in his sovereignty, guess who he's got on his mind? You and me in the world that he is going to make a way for salvation. And then look at verse, um, second prophecy, verse 9. Go back and look at verse 9. It says, Then the multitudes went before, and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. If you're taking notes or making a note in your Bible, this is the fulfillment of Psalm 118, verse 26. And they shouted out. What do they shout? They shout, Hosanna. That phrase, Hosanna, it means save us now. Now, the people there in the moment of that day, they're like, oh, this is the Messiah coming in. He's going to come in. He's going to liberate Jerusalem and Israel from the tyranny of Rome. He's going to set up his kingdom. Just a couple of weeks ago, back when they were in Jericho, remember the disciples were debating on who's going to sit to the left and who's going to sit to the right and who's going to be great in the kingdom. But it wasn't about that. It wasn't about that because according to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Jesus had to come and make a way for salvation. He had to come make a way for salvation first. So it was the fulfillment of the prophecy. And now, here's the part I want to go into uh, that I spent a lot of time on this week that I'm super stoked about presenting to you this morning. And it's called Daniel's 70-week prophecy. And you might need to get your phone ready because I'm going to encourage you to snap some photos of some slides. And, I'm, and, if you, and if you got your calculator, you're welcome to break out your calculator and follow along with me. Because I started Thursday morning at 1030 studying this, this passage. And I didn't get done until Thursday night around 11 o'clock. And I was just blown away at the utter pinpoint accuracy of prophecy. So let's, let's get into it. The greatest prophecy of Jesus fulfilled in Palm Sunday, it is in Daniel's 70-week prophecy. It pinpoints with precision accuracy the time of Jesus' coming. So first, let's go back and look at it. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 25 says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, and your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks 
in 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not bragging, but I just I want to give credence and I, I want to reference who my resources were. But Thursday, I started this study around 1030. I finished it um, Thursday night around 11 o'clock. And the first thing I, I read was The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. This book was written in 1894, okay? Uh, and you, you can find it on Amazon. But this entire book, 180 pages, is dedicated to this one prophecy, the coming prince, the marvelous prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks concerning the Antichrist. That was my first source. The next one was um, a sermon preached in 1982 by John MacArthur. He did a magnificent job of laying out the dates. And then also uh, Dr. David Jeremiah. He, uh, I, I studied some of his resources. And then the final um, person I studied that I want to give, uh, give reference to is um, Chuck Missler. Chuck Missler. So I studied these four guys. And I told myself Thursday, I am not going to present this to the body of Christ unless I can nail it down scientifically, accurately. I'm not one of those people that just believe in blind prophecy. It's got to be firmly grounded and rooted in the word of God before I will say it from this pulpit or I won't say it at all. Okay, that's how confident I am. So I encourage you to get your phones out, take some pictures, go home, check these numbers out. And, and look at what, pay close attention. Uh, what, what I'm, it took me about 11 hours to present what I'm going to give you over the next eight, seven to nine minutes. So our first slide is this. Okay, in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 9, just want to lay some groundwork so you can see it. Daniel the prophet says there will be 69 weeks from the decree. That's that's the 7 plus the 62, to rebuild Jerusalem. From, rebuilding of, from to rebuild Jerusalem to the appearing of Jesus as Messiah in Jerusalem. A week in Jewish literature is a seven-year period. You can find that in the book of Revelation. You can also find it in the Old Testament. It's a seven-year period. So Daniel is saying there will be 69 Seven-year periods, if you do the math, that's 483 years from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to Messiah's appearing. Okay? Now, when did the command go out? The command to rebuild Jerusalem went out by King Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The date of this decree, according to Nehemiah, is the first of Nisan, or March 14th, 445 B.C. So, here is a straightforward prophecy that in 483 years, and if you do the math, yeah, I did put it up there, that's 173,880 days that Messiah the Prince will enter into Jerusalem as Messiah. Sir Robert Anderson in the book, The Coming Prince, calculates this day to be April 6th, 32 AD. Now, I read all that, and I was like, okay, 
okay, I, I got to drill down. I got to drill down. I got to get out my calculator. I got to start looking at numbers, looking at calendars and the Gregorian calendar, the Jewish calendar, our 365-day-a-year calendar, looking at all the different calendars. And so it, it, it's, it's accurate. Are you saying that the Bible is that specific? Hold your sweet tea. Next slide. I'm going to go through this methodically, but just follow closely as much as you can. And if you don't get it right away, uh, welcome to the club. It took me all day Thursday to figure it out. But March 14th, 445 B.C. to April 6th, 32 A.D., uh, will be 483 years or 173,880 days. Now, if you break out your calculator right now and you do the math, um, 445 plus 32, and you add the 24 days, uh, it, it comes up to 477 years and 24 days. Well, that's not accurate. That, that, that number does not match the prophecy. But then, go one step down, you subtract the year 1 AD and 1 BC. And the reason you subtract those years, that year, excuse me, that one year, is because that's the same year. 1 AD and 1 BC is the same year. Well, that doesn't help us. We're going in the wrong direction. Okay? But anyway, but look the next level down, that brings us to 476 years and 24 days. So then, you calculate that number, you convert it to a calendar year, which is 365 days. Do the calculation. 476 years times 365 plus 24 is 173,764 days. About every couple hours, I had to come up for air. I had to come up for air and go sit and talk with my wife and have a glass of sweet tea. And then, and then I would dive back in because it was, it was tough. And then you figure in the leap year days. Okay, 476 years divided by four because there's a leap year every fourth year. If the, the number of leap years in that time period would be 119, okay? So then you add 119. That brings us to 173,883. Oh, no! We overshot the date. You notice that? You went, you went over. The prophecy is 173,880. But this calculation is 173,883. And John MacArthur points this out in his sermon called The Triumphal Entry in the, in the, uh, in the Prophecy Fulfilled in 1982 that um, according to solar calculations made by the England Royal Observatory, a calendar year, and many of our students will know this if you've been in any kind of science class in high school or in university, that a calendar year is one one-twenty-eighth of a day longer than our actual solar years. So basically what that means is this. Every 128 years, we lose a day, okay? So 483 divided by 128 comes out to 3. You subtract three, and you have the exact number of the prophecy, 173,800 
180 days. From the decree that goes out to rebuild Jerusalem, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, to Jesus coming into Jerusalem in the, in the triumphal entry. Friends and family, Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy with pinpoint accuracy. If you don't know him, you better get to know him because he is true, he is real, and his word is true, and the prophecies are true, and everything points to him. You know, there's Old Testament prophecies that uh, were fulfilled in Christ. Well, guess what? There's New Testament prophecies about the future of Jesus, the rapture of their church, his return. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive shall be caught up to meet him in the air. Just like those prophecies from the Old Testament were fulfilled in Christ, so will the New Testament prophecies be fulfilled in Christ. You can trust in Christ. Uh, a, a preacher recently, over the past couple of years, said, you know, we need, to, we need to leave behind the Old Testament. And that's, that's not a good statement. That's, there's no truth to that whatsoever. Friends and family, one of the reasons that David Ford believes in Jesus is because of the Old Testament. Okay? That, the Old Testament is the foundation of the New Testament because the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. It is the foundation. It is the bedrock. So the reason, one of the reasons I trust in Christ is because of the Old Testament. He fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies with accuracy, with pinpoint accuracy. I encourage you, I hope you took pictures, email me. Um, it, this was a combination of studying Sir Robert Anderson, written in 1891, uh, John MacArthur's sermon, David Jeremiah, Chuck Missler. But I was blown away. I've heard this prophecy for years. I've heard many people preach on it. And this isn't new to me that this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. What's new to me was the science of the math that blew me away. And I just, after I did this math, I just pushed my chair back from my studies and I just said, Lord, I trust you. I believe in you and I love you because you are true. You are true and your word is true. It's beautiful. So the third reason you can trust in Jesus is because he is the promised Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Scripture. That's one of the beautiful things. I mean, if, if somebody, if they can't do it, but if they were just to eliminate the, the New Testament, you could go back and put Jesus' entire life together based on over 350 Old Testament prophecies. Put your trust in Christ. And take God as his word, man. Study it. Study these prophecies. If you, if you like prophecy, if you like studying the fulfillment, it's there. There's some great concordances out there, some great commentaries on prophecy, how it was written in the Old Testament, it was fulfilled in the New Testament. And then the prophecies of the New Testament will be fulfilled when Christ returns. Put your faith in Christ. He loves you. He cares for you.
and he wants to be your Lord and Savior. He wants to take you by the hand and, and, and be your Lord, be your Savior, forgive you of your sins, and be the light of your life and carry you from now until the day of eternity. His credentials, remember I opened my sermon up, his credentials, his credentials are strong. His, his credentials are impeccable. And, and they, they can't, they're solid. There's no reason to not trust Christ. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's a very ignorant, ignorant thing to walk away from the word of God, to walk away from Christ, because it's that solid, it's that true, and it's that trustworthy. Let's continue. Verse 12, look at our final reason to trust in Christ. Then Jesus went in the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. The fourth and final reason that you can trust and believe in Jesus this morning is this, Jesus is holy God. Jesus is holy God. Jesus cares about what happens in the local church. And he expects the church, the body, the assembly, Calvary Chapel Irmo. You know, I don't make the calls here. I don't make the decisions on what we do here. God makes the decisions. His word makes the decisions. He calls the shots, okay? But his, he expects what takes place in this church and every church to be a place of praise and worship. Praise and worship. Do you not love praise and worship? Do you not just love lifting up your voices and expelling all the air out your lungs and singing his praises as Tim and the worship team lead us? That's what the house of God is meant to be for, for praise and worship. It's meant to be a house of prayer. We've got to do a better job there. We do have our prayer meeting that meets on Sunday mornings, but me and the leaders have been talking about coming up with a prayer night. But in the future, as we move forward, we want to have nights of prayer. Prayer for our children, prayer for our community, prayer for our nations. But the house of God is meant to be a place of prayer. It's meant to be a place of discipleship and teaching of God's word. That's what we're doing right now as we're studying the word of God. We're growing in our faith. We're being discipled. It's meant to be a place of joy. It's meant to be a place of excitement. Yes, we're at church. Praise the Lord. It's great to see you guys. But let there be joy in the house of God. Don't come in, oh, man, I don't want to be here. Come in with a bad attitude. No, man. Come in here with joy and excitement. We're going to love on you. You're going to love on some people. We're going to encourage each other. We're going to help each other follow Christ. And let the house of God be a place of joy and excitement. Let it be a place of fellowship, a place to be challenged, and a place to be built up. Now, sometimes you're going to come to church and you're going to leave here with a hop, skip, and a step, and I'm not going to try it because I'll mess up. But uh, you're going to leave here with joy, and you're going to be excited. Man, man, Pastor David, that was great. Some Sundays, you're going to leave here, and you might ha have some negative words about me. And I, I step on your toes. I say things that you don't like. But friends and family, please understand, all I'm doing is regurgitating the Word of God. I'm just conveying the words of Scripture to you. So sometimes I'm going to make you joyful, Sometimes I'm going to make you remorseful, but ultimately, at the end of the day, 
I want you to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and following him and loving him and experiencing that joy and that fellowship that he gives us. So church, again, what Jesus is condemning here, church is not a business. Church is not a business, and it should never, ever be about money, okay? It should not be about money. I, I, I've only been a pastor for 10 years. I, started, I became a pastor in 2014. Before that, I was in your place. And I've been to those churches, man, where they squeeze you. They try, they try to ring you out like a wet rag. How much more money can we get, you know? They call them nickels and nose churches. That how, many, how many noses they can get in the building, how many nickels they can get in the pot, we are not about that, okay? You should obey the Lord in your giving, but that's between you and God. That's between you and God. And that's why we don't pass the offering plate so you can do it as a, as, a, as, a, as a thing between you and the Lord after service at the back table or, or online. But church is not meant to be about money. Uh, it's about ministry and helping others follow Jesus, period. Verse 14 and 15. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Oh, this was a big no-no right here. According to 2 Samuel, I don't have the verse written down, but I did read it this week. They were not allowed in the temple. They were only allowed to go into the court of the Gentiles, and they did a no-no. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they're, they're, they're having a conniption fit. They're going into cardiac arrest as they see these people come into the temple. But it says in verse, uh, but in verse 14, what does Jesus do? You get out of this temple right now. You're not allowed in here. No, he doesn't do that. What does he do according to verse 14? He heals them. What does that say about the, the house of God? It's meant to be a place of healing. It's meant to be a place of restoration. It's meant to be a place for people to come and receive salve over their wounds that this world has caused. It's meant to be a place of healing. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things, Matthew calls them wonderful things that he did, and truly they were wonderful because Everything God does is wonderful and beautiful and beyond comprehension. And the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Now this is worship, okay? They were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. So worship is taking place in the temple of God. And look at the last three words of verse 15. What were the scribes and the Sadducees, Pharisees? They were what? Indignant. They didn't like this. They didn't like what was taking place in the house of God. Shame on them. They don't know their Bibles. This is gross hypocrisy, by the way. Gross hypocrisy by the religious leaders. You know, greed, theft in the temple, nah, no problem. We're down with that. That don't bother them. But real ministry and praise for Jesus, oh man, they become, it says in verse 15, they become indignant. They were very hypocritical. Man, if we just follow the Bible, if we just follow Scripture, just follow the Bible, from our salvation to how we do church, it's beautiful and it's glorious, and you will love it, and you will drink from the fountain of God when we do things biblically. Verse 16 and 17 says, and he said to um, him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you, not, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city of Bethany, and he lodged there. My closing statement is this. 
It's the thesis of my message. It's the title of my message. It's, I think it was the first sentence I said when I got up here. Is you can trust in Jesus. You can trust in Jesus, friend, based on the account of Palm Sunday. One, because he is sovereign Lord, as he displayed in this passage. He is the humble king who's ready to serve you and heal your wounds and come alongside you and build your life up and, and repair those broken parts of your life. He's here to serve you. He's the promised Messiah, as we saw in Daniel chapter 9 and the other, th well, we didn't look at him, but if you, if you text me or email me, I will put it to you in the email. I will list to you the 350 because I got them written on my computer. Uh, the, he's the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And finally, he is holy God. And my closing remarks is this this morning. Do you believe and trust in Jesus? If not, maybe he's calling you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning in person or you're watching online and Jesus is saying to you this morning, take me at my word. Put your trust in me. The sinner's prayer is you pray to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And in praying to receive him as your Lord and Savior, you say, God, please forgive me of my sin. We call that repentance. Where you say, Lord, I'm turning away from the world. I'm turning away from darkness. And then place your faith in Jesus. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. Say, I'm, I'm no longer trusting myself. I trust in your cross and your resurrection from the dead. And when you do that, he will come into your life. He will give you joy. He will give you excitement. He will forgive you of your sins. Man, it's the best thing on planet Earth. Can anybody think of anything better? Is there anything better in life? Is there anything better in life than Jesus? Nothing. Is there anything more important than life? No. Eternal salvation, eternity. It's, 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 it's a mind-blowingly amazing free gift. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if, you have your, and if your, your trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ, be strengthened, be encouraged in your faith. And, and understand and know this, he is who he says he is. His credentials are solid, strong, and you can build your life on it. Love you guys. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, thank you for um, this study on Palm Sunday, understanding that we can trust you, we can love you, we can obey you. Your credentials are solid. You are who you say you are. And Lord, I pray that every, each and every person, here in person and online that's watching, will say yes to you, Lord, and they will open their hearts and surrender their life to you today. For we love you and we praise you. For it's in the mighty, awesome, sovereign, humble, holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.